the sophisticated nature of the plot at the local, county, state, and federal level means that they could end up stealing the presidency without hitting a single police officer with an American flag or firing a shot. So I think our republic is in serious danger right now. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. This is our weekly roundup, where we invite a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. And on our outstanding panel today, Politicology's favorite psychology professor, Katherine Sanderson. Katherine holds a PhD in psychology from Princeton University, and she is now the Polar Family Professor and Chair of the Psychology Department at Amherst College. She's the author of a terrific book called Why We Act, Turning Bystanders into Moral Rebels. And on that topic, she recently testified to the January 6th Committee on the role of psychological factors contributing to the events of that day. Catherine, a pleasure to have you as always. Good to see you. Always good to talk. And making his Roundup debut is Matt Bennett. Matt is one of the co-founders of Third Way and its executive vice president for public affairs. He earned his JD from UVA Law, and he's a veteran of both of Bill Clinton's presidential campaigns and served as deputy assistant to the president for intergovernmental affairs in the Clinton White House. Matt, welcome back to Politicology. It's great to see you again. Thanks for having me back. On this week's Roundup, first, the Senate cleared the first hurdle to passing the most significant gun safety bill in decades. Then we'll look at the J6 committee outlining Donald Trump's involvement in the plots to steal the presidency in 2020. We're also going to talk about Fed Chair Jerome Powell's testimony before Congress, the stock market strain hitting retirement accounts, and President Biden's push for a gas tax holiday this summer. And then finally, when we switch tracks over to Politicology Plus, we're going to discuss the latest results in the New York Times focus group called America in Focus. Again, that will be in Politicology Plus, which is our private ad-free version of the podcast filled with strategy and analysis you won't get anywhere else. If you're listening to us in the Apple Podcasts app, you can navigate to the Politicology Show and tap the button that says Try Free, or you can sign up at politicology.com slash plus. We'll dig in right after this. On Tuesday, the Senate cleared the first hurdle in its push for bipartisan gun reform, the Safer Communities Act. By a 64-34 vote, the Senate has agreed to take up a compromise bill that would break a decades-long stalemate over federal legislation to address gun violence. The vote came a few hours after a group of Republican and Democratic senators released the text of the legislation after spending days ironing out the details of the bill. The bill is 80 pages, has provisions for sending $750 million to help states implement and run crisis intervention programs like red flag laws, which we've discussed earlier on the podcast. It will close the boyfriend loophole. It will require more gun sellers to register as federally licensed firearm dealers, which will also require them to administer background checks. It will allow for more thorough reviews of people between the ages of 18 to 21 who want to buy guns. It creates federal statutes that toughen penalties for gun trafficking and for people making illegal straw purchases, buying and then selling weapons to people barred from purchasing a gun. 14 Republicans, including Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, voted to advance the bill. Senator Pat Toomey of Pennsylvania was absent from the vote, but did release a statement in support of the bill. Proponents of the bill have been pushing for final Senate approval before the 4th of July recess. And the House is expected to pass the bill quickly after the Senate. 
The NRA, right on cue, announced their opposition to the bill, and House Republicans are formally opposing the legislation in a closed-door meeting on Wednesday. Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy and Minority Whip Steve Scalise told their Republican colleagues that they opposed the bill and pushed other members to vote against the measure. The legislation will still likely receive support from some moderate Republicans. A uh, Republican House member told NBC News that they predict 10 to 15 Republicans will ultimately defect and vote for the bill in the House. And among that group is Tony Gonzalez, a Republican representative from Uvalde, who announced his support for the bill on Wednesday. So, Matt, the impossible has become possible. (laughs) There is a bipartisan push for gun control measures in the Senate that has a chance at passing. How are you thinking about the bill passing this hurdle? I mean, look, it only took 28 years, uh, so I don't know what the rush was. It is great news that they finally have done something of significance. Really, there's been nothing since the assault weapons ban was passed in 1994. That, of course, went away in 2004 because it had a sunset provision. And since then, uh, with a couple of exceptions of fiddling around the edges of the background check system, they've done nothing. So this is fantastic news. Um, All credit to Senator Murphy, who gave an incredible impassioned speech on the floor of the Senate on the day of the Uvalde shooting, begging, literally saying, I'm on my knees begging his colleagues to do something. And, and, and then they did it. Uh, and they have, they've picked all the fruit that is within reach, I think, of this Congress. And uh, we ought to applaud what they've done. Catherine, this bill comes less than a month after the horrific shooting obviously, at Robb Elementary in Uvalde, Texas. We've already seen someone like Liz Cheney become a moral rebel after the January 6th attack. And now more than a dozen Republicans voted to advance gun control legislation. And that really can't be explained by political pressure. Um, Nate Cohn made a really good point in uh, New York Times a couple of weeks ago that Republicans never really suffer electoral punishment from voters when they don't take action in the aftermath of appalling episodes of gun violence. So how are you thinking about these Republican senators defecting uh, I put that in air quotes, and and maybe you can explain how a pivotal event like this could push someone to be a moral rebel. So I will say that I was very heartened. I am very heartened, and I'm I'm saying that a little bit hesitantly since we actually don't have the final vote yet, right? I mean, this is who's pledging support, so it's always a little bit uh, risky in that. But but I think it's really encouraging, frankly, that it truly is bipartisan, and it's not just trying to squeak through, you know, even at the sixty. I think the fact that Mitch McConnell came out for it is is pretty remarkable for a lot of different reasons. And I think it really does suggest that an event that is so compelling, and it's really hard to imagine a more compelling scene than than what happened that day in Texas with, you know, so many little kids and educators and and what appears to be really sort of a botched response on behalf of law enforcement, which maybe makes it a little bit harder to go with the you know, the good guys with a gun will stop the bad guy with a gun because it mm. kind of seems like a bunch of good guys with a gun sat for 58 minutes. Didn't. Uh, didn't. And, and, yeah. and didn't. And, and you know, by all accounts, those minutes would not have saved all lives, but but pretty clearly would have saved uh, at least a few lives. So So I will say I think that's really encouraging. I will also say that it illustrates that Republicans do have the ability to stand up when they really are concerned about something. And it's really kind of an interesting juxtaposition 
of I know another you know key topic for today about what's happening in terms of January 6th hearings in that there would have been the potential for a similar number of Republicans, 14 say, mm-hmm. to have stood up and said, hey, you know, what what Trump did that day is really not acceptable and to vote for impeachment. Yeah. Matt, what do you make of the McConnell uh, move on this? It does seem out of character. Uh, Modestly out of character. I think what we have seen with McConnell is that when the wind is blowing pretty strongly in in, uh, a certain direction, he he will go there. And he did on the infrastructure bill. Uh, Remember that um, a lot of uh, Senate Republicans voted for that bill very few in the House did. Uh, some who did have lost their primaries as a result of voting for a bill that would fix roads and bridges, uh, insanely enough. But uh, McConnell is uh, nothing if not an incredibly crafty inside player. And he saw that after Evaldi, they had to do something. And that with John Cornyn at the, at the helm for them, it wasn't going to infringe on anybody's Second Amendment rights and that it would be safe to support. Okay, before we move on from guns, I want to talk about one other thing here on this front. Hours before the Senate voted on this bill, uh, disgraced former Missouri governor turned Senate candidate, Eric Greitens, released another campaign ad, this one showing him breaking through the door of a house with a paramilitary group to go rhino hunting. And the ad was, I mean, coming, I, I, I feel like I've seen everything when it comes to political advertising. I've never seen anything like this. It was, uh, we can say jarring to say the least, but I, I want to play the audio for our listeners. Let's, let's roll the whole ad. I'm Eric Greitens, Navy SEAL. And today we're going rhino hunting. The rhino feeds on corruption and is marked by the stripes of cowardice. Join the MAGA crew, get a rhino hunting permit. There's no bagging limit, no tagging limit, and it doesn't expire until we save our country. Matt, <laughs> uh, as a campaign guy, what, what, do you, what, what was your reaction to this ad, especially the timing of it? So my reaction to that ad was the same reaction that I've had to lots of things in the Trump era, which was to be in the same exact moment, un- completely horrified and astounded, and also completely unsurprised. Eric Greitens is a terrible person. Uh, he is credibly accused of inc- terrible things, including very horrific instances of domestic violence. And uh, so it is unsurprising that he would, at this uh, awful moment in our history, uh, with this unspeakable gun tragedy unfolding, put out an ad that is just despicable in every possible way. Um, so I don't think it's possible to shock people in politics anymore because we have been, that has been pounded out of us by the just unspeakable nature of the way the MAGA universe, you know, conducts itself in politics. Catherine, Talk about who Eric is appealing to and how this ad works. So it seems very clear that he's appealing to 
really the Trump base. And so people who would find this ad appealing are going to be the people who wanted to hang Mike Pence. I mean, that seems that seems really clear. And I'm going to share a, a small bit what I thought actually is a little bit of optimism in the middle of, of hearing that okay. horrific audio. Um, and that is that it appears that that ad prompted a new person to run for the U.S. in Missouri. So I think the Washington Post broke uh, within the last day or so, and Matt probably knows more about this than I do. But it appears that there may be a new independent candidate running for Senate in Missouri, with which might gain some strong bipartisan support. Maybe Matt has more to say about that. that that's right. It is. Um, I can't remember the guy's name, but he's a he's a fairly conservative Republican. Who John is, Wood. His name John is Wood, John right. Wood. He's, I actually he's, looked it up. Yeah. Yeah, he's been working uh, as a counsel on the January 6th committee very effectively uh, and is, by all accounts, doing a fantastic job, but uh, is now has been enticed by um, sane Republicans in Missouri, uh, like I think folks in the kind of John Danforth world, to come back to the state and run as an independent. Uh, Missouri is very red. Uh, There is virtually no chance of a Democrat winning that seat, but, um, but a sane Republican could give somebody like Greitens a run for their money. Speaking of January 6th, the January 6th committee continued their public hearings over the last week. Last Thursday, the committee featured testimony demonstrating that Donald Trump pressured Mike Pence to unilaterally overturn the 2020 election, even after Trump was told the plan was illegal. This is huge. The once little-known conservative lawyer, John Eastman, led a push to have Pence obstruct the electoral certification and hand Trump another term in office. Vice President Pence's top White House lawyer, Greg Jacob, testified that Eastman admitted in front of Trump two days before the attack on the Capitol that the plan violated the law. Eastman actually sought a preemptive pardon from Trump after the insurrection because of the criminal exposure he had for hatching the plan and knew he had. The committee also reconstructed Pence's day on January 6th, including a heard phone call during which Trump called him a wimp and questioned his manhood. Catherine, I want to start with you. In the context of government, (laughs) the vice president stealing the election is the 450-volt shock in the Milgram experiment. And we don't need to reprise the entire thing, but, but how should we be thinking about Pence's decision not to cave to Trump. So again, I I am surprised to utter these words, but it kind of <laughs> appears to be um, Mike Pence, moral rebel, uh, which is which is really sort of a shocking statement, and yeah. it, it is fascinating given how much Mike Pence has overlooked, you know, from again during the the fall of 2016, the. Access Hollywood tape, you know, which which Pence sort of initially, you know, sort of stepped away from, but then, you know, came right back after, you know, 48 hour cooling off period and so on. Mike Pence has been there, you know, through thick and thin. And it really kind of seems amazing that at that moment, Mike Pence decided I'm not going to do it. And I I do. I, I know crediting might seem a little bit strong since it is the law that he was following. But I do think it's good because I, I think you would be foolish to have bet on Mike Pence to do the right thing in that moment. Yeah, I totally agree. But since it's, okay, it, it's tough to credit him. I agree. I feel the same way. Can you talk about how watching someone you disagree with do something good 
counters the myth of monsters? Sure. So, I mean, if that, and that's a really interesting and nice psychological connection, Ron. Uh, <laughs> so, so it does seem, and and I think, frankly, many Democrats, you know, have seen this uh, to a much better extent with with Liz Cheney of really saying, you know, there are good people and there are bad people, and and these, you know, really divided times. It's very easy to sort of categorize us versus them, uh, and and so I think actually Mike Pence doing something good uh, in terms of standing up for democracy is really beneficial. I will also say that as we just discussed. I am surprised to find myself excited about John Wood, former clerk for <laughs> Clarence Thomas, you know, running for Senate in Missouri, right? I mean, so so we can imagine that during these times, what becomes more important is not, are you a Republican or are you a Democrat, or even whose politics do I favor? I probably wouldn't really support John Wood's votes, I'm going to just predict, for Supreme Court nominees uh, if he were to win. However, I think for many people, what we're all really in favor of is democracy. And so mm-hmm. Pence saying, I I support democracy and this is what I have to do, just like people, Dan Quayle, Al Gore, you know, and so on have done in years past uh, is in fact impressive during these difficult times. Okay. So the committee also tied Donald Trump directly to the plot to put forward fake slates of electors of pro-Trump electors and added new details about Trump's plan to bully his way back into the presidency. And initially, Trump campaign attorneys told Republican officials that they planned to only use the alternate electors if their court cases challenging the votes in certain states were successful. But after they started losing, some people in, by the way, losing and losing and losing and losing and losing again, some people in Trump's camp wanted to plow ahead and others grew a bit wary of the plan, but didn't seem to put a stop to it. And so two of the attorneys who tried to absolve themselves of the plan spoke to the January 6th committee Um, Here's what former Trump campaign lawyer Justin Clark said. I just remember I either either replied or called somebody saying, unless we have litigation pending this, like in these states, like, I don't think this is appropriate or, you know, this isn't the right thing to do. I don't remember how I phrased it, but um, I got into a little bit of a back and forth. And I think it was with Ken Cheeseboro um, where I said, all right, you know, you just get after it. Like, I I'm out. Okay, and one more. And here's Trump campaign lawyer, Matt Morgan. At that point, um, I had Josh Finley email Mr. Chesbro politely to say, this is your task. You are responsible for the Electoral College issues moving forward. And this was my way of taking that responsibility to zero. Matt, here's the, so as I was listening to these, watching these guys, the language they used here really stuck out to me. And I know this, this wasn't a widely, you know, covered point, but one of them says, you just get after it. And the other one says, this is your task. Those do not feel like uh, anything resembling a repudiation or disapproval or, uh, hey, maybe you shouldn't do that. It's not legal or you might go to jail, or anything like that. It feels more of a like a, a, a stand back and stand by approach than an actual repudiation. I just wonder if you if you if you caught on to that and what you made of those 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 two guys. Oh, absolutely. I mean, look, if you're serving in the Trump White House or on the Trump campaign in late uh, 2020, 
you are not a hero. <laughs> Let's be clear, no matter what you did. Um, I, I do agree with Catherine that uh, we have to applaud Mike Pence for you know standing in the breach in the face of unbelievable pressure from the president. But that doesn't make him heroic. And certainly these guys who are washing their hands of a, a, a coup attempt um, without, you know, calling the FBI or, or you know, resigning in protest uh, are hardly paragons of, you know, American patriotism. I'm glad that they didn't, you know, help uh, the coup, but it, it doesn't make them heroes. So the committee heard from two Republican politicians who Trump attempted to bully, uh, Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, who Trump famously asked to find enough votes to seal the state, and Rusty Bowers, the Speaker of the Arizona House of Representatives. Bowers testified that he resisted Trump's request to get him to create a slate of pro-Trump electors in Arizona in the hopes that Pence would acknowledge votes of the fake electors. Bowers said that he told Trump, you are asking me to do something against my oath and I will not break my oath. Bowers also said that he rebuffed Trump. Uh, a truck was driven through his neighbor, that after he rebuffed Trump, a truck was driven through his neighborhood playing a recording that declared he was a pedophile. Raffensperger testified that he had turned down, that after he turned down Trump's request to find votes, his wife received sexualized threats and that people broke into his daughter-in-law's house. The committee also demonstrated that Rudy Giuliani and White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows tried to persuade state officials to avoid certifying vote counts to give Trump an electoral college victory. So, Matt, a couple of months ago, we talked about the presentation you put together at Third Way about the plot to steal the 2024 presidential election and and, and what you guys are doing uh, sort of in preparation for that and what the pro-democracy movement can do to stop it. And I wonder how your thinking has changed or evolved uh, about potential election theft during these public hearings as you as you watch them unfold. Well, it certainly deepened my alarm about the threat to our democracy because what has happened uh, since January of 2021, uh, January 6th, is that the Republicans haven't given up. They've actually gotten organized. So all of the things that the committee is dealing with uh, involving the attempt to overturn the 2020 election was a kind of last minute Hail Mary by the uh, by mostly by Trump himself and his immediate inner circle uh, that that expanded to include people uh, like Sidney Powell and Cleena Mitchell and others who were believers in the big lie. But it was happening in a in a very um, disorganized, shambolic way, and that, nothing epitomizes that more than the hilarious press conference at the Four Seasons Landscaping. Um, it, it it was not funny. Uh, what they were doing to these people was horrible, as the uh, testimony you just referred to made clear. They were ruining people's lives. Um, and, and then 140 police officers were injured and people died as a result of the violence on January 6th. So none of this is humorous, but it was, it was clownish in its uh, application. What is happening now is that they have learned those lessons and they are taking them forward with real seriousness, and you have a, a much graver threat because they're going to have four years to prepare to steal the presidency uh, when they only had two months to do it last time. And it, so I am I'm even more alarmed than I was before. 
Matt, your statement was so depressing. My goodness. I, I feel like moving to Canada like this yeah, afternoon. You know, My goodness. That's if you like can, you should. Uh, I tell you, like all these people buying it's Portugal kind of- citizenship is not a bad idea. Yeah. I mean, I've, t- I've, I've talked to former intelligence officers and told them, hey, like, is it a good idea to like have a backup plan outside of the United States right now? I'm like, yeah, actually, my wife is telling me we should do that now. Like, this is, this is, it's not a, it's not a happy place. It's not a happy time. Like, this is only going to increase. And, and I think after watching the, 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 the clarity from these hearings, political violence, which is something that we've all sort of been watching for a long time, get more organized. Uh, it, it, January 6th, I think it's clear to everybody now. It should be clear to anybody watching those hearings that this was not an anomaly. It was a data point in the in the, in the trajectory of increasing organized political violence. And the next thing we're going to see is assassination attempts, most likely, um, and and more organized extreme extremist militias. I just don't see any way around that. That sounds really scary, but but I don't I don't know how we walk back from that. Well, um, can I offer yeah. a, another please, view? Yeah. Please, I, something hopeful. <laughs> please, <laughs> something, that, something more optimistic than that. This is not hopeful, uh, I'm, I'm afraid. Sorry, Catherine. Uh, the, but my view is, um, I, I agree with you, Ron. I think political violence is vastly more likely uh, than it was before. And I think that'll be terrible, but it will be it is likely to be limited. I don't think we're going to have a, a shooting civil war going on in the United States. What I do think, though, is that there we could see a bloodless coup, uh, which is to say that the, the sophisticated nature of the of the uh, plot that they are putting together um, at the local, county, state, and federal level means that they could end up stealing the presidency without you know hitting a single police officer with an American flag or firing a shot. Uh, particularly if they control Congress uh, in January of 2025. So I think our republic is in serious danger right now. All right. On Wednesday, the chair of the Federal Reserve, Jerome Powell, testified before the Senate Banking Committee. He told the committee it might be possible to lower rapid inflation without tipping America into a downturn, but that it would be very challenging to achieve and that a recession is certainly a possibility. This hearing comes after reports that inflation hit 8.6%. That's according to the CPI, which everyone knows I have a problem with. The fastest pace in four decades and the Fed raised interest rates by three quarters of a point. This all comes as Alicia Munell, the director of the Center for Retirement Research at Boston College, wrote that retirement plans have collectively lost more than $3 trillion since the beginning of the year. And on Wednesday, with fuel prices near record highs, President Biden urged Congress to suspend the federal gas tax, which is 18 cents per gallon on gasoline and 24 cents per gallon on diesel through the end of the summer. And Biden acknowledged that the gas tax holiday wouldn't fix the problem, but it would provide, quote, a bit of breathing room for working families. Um, Mitch McConnell quickly dismissed the request, all but dooming the changes of the plan uh, in passing the Senate. Um, and, and in any case, I think it's more of a gimmick than than anything else. But optically, I think it is a good plan. Strategically, it's a good plan because you know anyone who's familiar with pricing psychology knows that if you can keep uh, if you can keep it under you know in the ninety nine range and the ninety seven and ninety nine range, then it's a whole lot better than tipping over to five dollars a gallon. That is big. Uh, that's a big psychological shift, which I suspect was driving 
the move. Matt, we've talked a lot about inflation on the show, um, specifically because of the political implications. Um, but I want to get your take with this, you know, with it's so high, we're teetering on the brink of a recession. Um, and no matter what, whether he's responsible or not, voters are going to blame the president. They're going to blame the party, party in power. Is there anything Democrats can do to persuade them to keep them in power if this is indeed the motivating, uh, uh, the motivating factor in, in the elections? Uh, it's going to be really hard to do. Uh, I think we have to face facts. I think there are a few things Democrats could try to do to change the political chemistry a little bit. I'm not sure that this is one of them because uh, I don't think it's going to pass in Congress. I don't think there are the votes to do it. There are enough Democrats skeptical of it. And I am not a fan when you control both houses of Congress of the president proposing things he can't get done when for the past year and a half, we've been arguing over a bunch of stuff that he hasn't gotten done. So I, I, I generally am very supportive of this White House, uh, but I'm not sure this move was a good one. What I do think the White House could do is use the bully pulpit a little bit differently. So far, um, you've heard from them, uh, the White House staff and from Biden, pretty standard democratic rhetoric about how terrible oil companies are. And oil companies are terrible. Let's be clear. They're terrible. They're taking huge profits and they're outrageous and they're making demands about things that would have no impact on short-term prices like pipelines and drilling in Alaska. However, uh, what I think uh, Biden might consider doing is playing its type a little bit and going to Houston and calling a summit of the, of the CEOs of the oil companies and saying to them, don't talk to me about things that will take five years or 10 years to change oil prices. Talk to me about things that will take two months to change oil prices and tell me what you need and I'll do it. And uh, he'll take some flack from the climate community of, of which I am a member uh, if he does that kind of thing. Uh, but I think it's worth it. And I think that might help show voters that he's doing everything he can. But look, there's a global price for oil. And unless the Saudis start pumping a lot more, the price is going to remain high no matter what he does. I like that approach. I think that'd be interesting to see. With regard to the Saudis, uh, I'm also interested in because this is something we've talked on the show before, and I'd love to hear how you see this, because there's this juxtaposition of the administration uh, obviously fighting for democracy on many, many fronts, right? Not just domestically, but then framing the war in Ukraine and our support for the Ukrainians fighting the Russians as, you know, uh, helping them fight for democracy, essentially our values. How how do you square the administration trying to cozy up to the Saudis and Venezuela at the same time? And obviously, he's been, they've been getting a lot of, I think, just criticism for this when at the same time, voters are really pissed about gas prices and he's, he's, in, he's between a rock and a hard place. So how do you, how do you square this? The problem is that every drop of, well, not almost every drop of oil outside of North America and like Norway uh, is under the feet of terrible people, really awful people in Venezuela and in Saudi Arabia and in Russia. And so there is no, you know, perfect um, liberal democracy where we can go and say, uh, please increase your marginal production of oil so that we can lower the global price. The only place that can do it on earth is Saudi Arabia. 
Um, and I am taking a kind of real politic view of this, that the Saudis are committing genocide in Yemen. They obviously murdered an American journalist. Uh, these are not good people. But And, and the 9-11 families are apoplectic about the idea of, of talking to them for good reason. But on the other hand, um, lowering the price of oil is going to change the lives of people both in the United States and elsewhere in fundamental ways. I mean, the, the oil price isn't just what it costs to fill up your tank. It changes the price of everything, including food. And I think if we can get them to pump more, we should. I'm not sure we can because it's not in their interest to do so. Okay. Last question on this. Since you mentioned you're in the climate community, do you think this is a good opportunity to be pushing for a, a, a more aggressive shift toward renewables since all of the oil is under the feet of the bad guys? Yes, I think uh, we should always take that opportunity. Um, the biggest opportunity ever that we missed because George W. Bush was president was 9-11, uh, where 19 of the 20 hijackers were from Saudi Arabia. And, it, and if Al Gore had been president, I guarantee he would have driven that case home. So sure, we should be talking about switching to clean energy uh, every chance we get. The problem is that that transition takes time. People can't just go out and buy an e-vehicle because gas is expensive, because they're hard to get and they're expensive and people don't have that kind of uh, disposable income right now. But but as a general matter, yes, we should always be making that case in moments like this. Okay, Catherine, it's been a very stressful two and a half years with the pandemic, <laughs> to, say, to say the least, is putting it as mildly as we can. And the recovery from the pandemic and and, and, you know, and it's been a stressful six and a half, seven years going back to the beginning of the Trump campaign. Um, can you talk about how these periods of prolonged stress impact us psychologically and, and you know, especially not just individually, but also at a, as a, at a group level? It's something that I'm giving a lot of thought to on, on lots of different levels. So I, of course, am a professor and I've taught for a long time, 24 years, and my students this year were struggling in ways that I just have never seen. So the number of students who were experiencing high levels of chronic stress uh, was astronomical, including students who were working full-time while sending money home to their parents, uh, people who are worried about their own safety, people who are worried about the safety of loved ones who are in precarious situations. Obviously, these have been extraordinarily difficult times, but I think one of the biggest challenges psychologically, and this is true, I think, for the pandemic, but also, frankly, for this issue in terms of the economy, is that the lack of certainty means that the stress is chronic and prolonged. So we're actually much better as humans dealing with very specific stressors. You know, I have to go in tomorrow and have a job interview, or there was a horrible flood and, you know, my basement is destroyed and I have to work on that, et cetera. We're actually much better when stresses are predictable, are finite, and there's a clear end. And I can't imagine we're now in June of 2022. Think back to two years ago when everyone was like, well, we're going to ride it out over the summer and then there'll be a vaccine and then we'll be good. And, and that just isn't the case, right? I mean, it's it's skyrocketing in terms of the number of people who are testing positive. And, and even though rates of deaths are, you know, fortunately lower than they were because of vaccinations and boosters and now for the littlest kids, but rates of COVID are still high. And it is unbelievable that, that here we are after two years 
And there really is no clear end in sight, which I think all of that adds just substantially to the psychological stress that we're all under. And we're also really bad at predicting the future as human beings. So are there a handful of practical tips you can give people to look after them, look after themselves in t- like in times of, of intense uncertainty, right? Which is where we are on, on, in so many domains. What, what are some, what are the, what's the cheat sheet of self-care that you would give someone uh, who seems to be um, s- struggling with this? So it's, uh, it's, it's great that you ask, Ron, because I'm actually doing with some regularity a talk newly developed during the pandemic called The Psychology of Uncertainty. Uh, because oh. really, that, because that is what we're in. And, and here's one of my big pieces of advice, and this will be familiar to many people, and that's the AA serenity prayer, right? Mm. God grant me the serenity to accept the things <laughs> I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Mm. And, and to me, thinking about what can we control. So there are lots of things we can't control. I can't control the price of gas. You know, I can't control, you know, again, a million different things. I can't control what the Supreme Court is going to do this afternoon or tomorrow or next week. You know, I can't really control lots of things. But you know what I can control? When I'm on a plane, I'm going to wear a mask, for example, you know, or, or when I'm going to go to the grocery store, I'm going to wear a mask or I'm going to get my booster or whatever. Uh, I'm going to make sure I vote. I'm going to, you know, make some calls, write some letters, you know, et cetera. So again, I think thinking very clearly about what is within our control and, and doing things that allow us to exercise control in that way is really important in terms of psychological well-being. That's great. Okay, now that we're up to speed on a few of the biggest stories this week, I want to turn to what you're watching. Matt, what are you looking at under the radar? There are a few races that no one is paying attention to in presidential swing states that I think are vitally important. So uh, there are races for county commissioner. There are uh, some key state legislative races that could actually impact the outcome of the presidential election. So I'm paying very close attention to places like Michigan, Wisconsin, Nevada, uh, Pennsylvania, to what is happening in some of those uh, very localized races. Okay. Catherine, how about you? I was the mom of a second grader when the Sandy Hook shootings happened. And I just remember being absolutely devastated about what those parents experienced. When the most recent school shooting in Uvalde happened, I was on an airplane, I landed, I turned on my phone and got, you know, all of these alerts. And I literally started crying. I mean, my seatmate must have thought I had terrible personal news, but I literally teared up and started crying on the plane. And, and it's so easy for all of us to imagine, you know, dropping our kids off at school and, and then having this terrible event. But what I was actually struck by was a piece in the New York Times uh, last week that talked about the number of shootings that actually happen that are not mass shootings, that happen every day. And in particular, the, the reporter visited Chicago. So I was born in Chicago. I have lots of family still in Chicago. And, and it described the massive number of deaths by shooting, including deaths by, of, you know, kids, of teenagers, of, of people in their, their early 20s. Again, most of these are Black kids, Black teenagers. And, and it just struck me that it's very easy for us to get pulled, and I'm going to use a psychology term, um, availability, 
which is this the tendency to sort of estimate the likelihood of something based on how easily it comes to mind. So when there is a school shooting in Sandy Hook and Uvalde, it is you know, front row coverage on, on newspapers and CNN and, and, you know, so on. And, and it really grabs our attention. But the reality that just struck me in, in this story is that there's so many families that are experiencing deaths by gun violence in Philadelphia and DC and Chicago and New York that, that aren't receiving this sort of coverage, but these families are grieving just the same. That's a really important point. There's a great piece. Um, it was in the Times, I think, last week. Maybe we can link to that covers ex- exactly what you're talking about, uh, specifically the volume of gun violence as it relates to um, mass shootings. Uh, there's one thing I want to mention. Uh, we got an email from a Politicology Plus subscriber, Mark Wells. Uh, hello, Mark. Um, who said, I hope you can reserve one segment to talk about the Texas Republican Party platform that they released this week. Um, he says, chilling does not even begin to describe it. And while we, we're not doing a whole segment on this, I, I do want to mention it and I want to explain why we didn't do a whole segment on it, Mark. So uh, for listeners who haven't, who haven't um, uh, read it or aren't familiar with this, the, the new Texas Republican Party, Republican Party platform includes things like um, homosexuality is an abnormal lifestyle choice, quote. Um, it, it unequivocally states that Biden didn't win the 2020 election. It calls him acting president. Uh, it urges the legislature to put a referendum on secession on the 2023 ballot. Um, so you might be thinking, okay, what's going on here, right? Is, is this representative of what Republicans are actually thinking and, and, and voting on in Texas? And first of all, it absolutely isn't. Uh, but here's what you have to understand about, um, well, at least I can speak for the Republican side and the Matt, I, maybe you can explain how this is different on the Democrat side, but, um, what's happening is, uh, the Republican national committee, the Republican party, the way it's structured is a, a bottom up approach in terms of voting power and how platforms and, and, and authority ultimately reach, reach the national committee. And the 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 local party committees in every state all around the country tend to be comprised of I'll just call them the craziest people who have nothing to do on Tuesday afternoons. They show up and they vote on the most extreme things you could possibly put in a in a in a in a policy platform, um, and and they aren't at all representative of voters. They have absolutely nothing to do with. With Republican, uh, with with the Republican base at large, that doesn't mean the Republican base isn't going crazier. They are, they are obviously, and we've talked about that. But the the thing to take away here is these party, these people don't really represent the electorate, but they do represent the official Republican Party in the state. And when you look at um, voting trends, so. Uh, take uh, John Cornyn, for example, who we talked about a little bit earlier. John Cornyn, who's voting for the um, the the gun legislation. He won his last primary with 70-something percent of the vote, Republican voters. So there's a massive disconnect between the people who show up at local, state, county, party committee meetings that ultimately vote on these platforms. And, um, and that has a lot to do with the way the bylaws structure the National Party, which, as I understand it, is different and inverted from the way the Democratic Party is is organized and structured, which is why maybe you don't see as much of this on the Democratic side. Matt, do you want to explain that? 
Yeah, that's right. The Democratic Party is much more top down. So, for example, right now, the National Party is deciding uh, which state is going to go first in presidential primary process. It's not going to be Iowa anymore. That is over with after the caucuses. (laughs) It was a uh, it was a murder suicide of the caucuses in 2020. And um, and so that decision is being made by people, you know, in Washington. Uh, There are some. state parties that have gotten a little out there. Uh, some were taken over by Bernie Sanders folks after 2020, uh, like Nevada. Uh, but frankly, they don't have much power. And um, so I think unlike the Republican Party, which, as you know, is a little more top, bottom up, uh, the state parties in our system uh, tend not to count for much. However, there are some state parties that are extraordinarily well run. I would point to Wisconsin as one. Um, the state party uh, executive director there, Ben Wickler, uh, he might be the chairman, um, is an unbelievably capable guy, and and they're going to make a real impact on the outcome of the elections. But in terms of setting national policy, that happens at the national level. Yep. Terrific. So, Mark, the reason we didn't do a whole segment on this uh, is because while it's 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 going to make some great uh, buzzy headlines, it really isn't moving the needle in terms of politics. Um, it's what you're seeing is an intensification among most the most active people uh, in the base, um, but I can't see it um, changing voter behavior in any in any uh, meaningful macro way. So there you go. All right, gang. Before we flip over to Politicology Plus, where can people find you on the internet, Matt? Well, third way is at thirdway.org, and I'm at thirdwaymattb on Twitter. And Catherine, everyone should read why we act. Where else can they find you? They can find me on Twitter at Sanderson Speaks and on Instagram at Sanderson Speaking. And is it possible for them to read your testimony to the J6 committee? Um, is that that is a good question. A lot of people have asked me that. And so I'm I'm holding off for right now because I don't know exactly what they're going to do with it. But my expectation okay. is they are going to release it as part of the uh, entire file. So I have not actually uh, distributed it, but my assumption is it, it will be available. And and if it is not included as part of their material later this fall, I will be uh, distributing it myself. Terrific. And we'll point to it when that happens. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening today. You can support the show by joining the growing, thriving community of Politicology Plus members and gain access to hours of special content designed to help you think like a political strategist and look further down the road than everyone else and understand the forces and figures shaping the fight for democracy. You can unlock this premium content at politicology.com slash plus. If you have any questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us as always at podcast at politicology.com. Even if we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.